Good morning. Welcome, church. It's a beautiful day to be in the house of the Lord. Amen. Uh, this morning, I'm going to pray a prayer from St. Augustine's Confessions. Sometimes I love to just appreciate and utilize the beautiful prayers that have been recorded. You know, in the old days, they had something called the Book of Common Prayer. If you guys know about that, it was an Anglican thing. But it's really cool. If you haven't checked it out, you should do that. But I'm going to pray this prayer from St. Augustine's Confessions this morning. It says, Holy Spirit, show me if I am too settled in this world. Shift me from the anchoring places of my own security. Remind me that you have made me for yourself, O Lord, and my heart is restless until it rests in you. I'm going to read that again, but I'm going to use plural pronouns. Just my own paraphrase of this prayer so that we can pray it together. Amen. Holy Spirit, show us if we are too settled in this world. Shift us from the anchoring places of our own security. Remind us that you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Amen. Let's rest in him this morning. You can stand with us if you're able, if you would like to. This is a free place where you can express your worship. If you want to stand, you can. You can kneel. You can sit. You can lay on the floor for all I care. I'm not going to get upset. You can run laps. It's all good. Some people might look at you weird, but hey, you know, it's free in the presence of the Lord. And we celebrate him this morning. He's worthy. Amen. Let's worship him together. about what these words, what we're saying this morning as we declare these things. Let it be true in our hearts, Lord. Reaching out to welcome you, God. Fill this place
the source. Just going to read this psalm to you this morning from it's chapter 16. I want to just acknowledge this is a beautiful psalm. I love something I heard this weekend from a previous pastor and author, Sky Jatani, about the psalms, because sometimes the psalms are weird, right? Some of the psalms, it's like, I don't, I don't know if I want to read that in church. It's kind of weird. He says that the psalms, these are, are, this is Israel's prayer book. It is full. These are songs that they really sing. He said you need to read them as descriptive rather than prescriptive, right? Some of the psalms are people honestly and just authentic, authentically wrestling with the Lord. Sometimes they're saying things that are hard for us to understand, especially with the divide, just culture and time. But we also can relate sometimes. Those aren't maybe things that we would want to write down in a prayer book and read out loud in front of everybody. <laughs> but the psalmists were honest before the Lord, and that is true worship, when you can come before God honestly. And sometimes that's us celebrating and saying, yes, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places, like we're going to say today. And sometimes that's saying, God, where are you? Where are you? Sometimes that's us saying, God, can you do something about my enemies, my adversaries? They're coming after me. I really, really am upset right now. I want them to be wiped out. Just get rid of them. Like, really, we've never said that. You know, we have. So I think that it's just a good reminder. I'm going to read this. It's a, it's a short one. This is a good one. But I just want to acknowledge that as we read these psalms, these are beautiful and authentic prayers to the Lord. So when you read the Psalms, think about that. Think about how you can relate to what the author is feeling. The emotions of what they're feeling are true, and I think God included them for us to know that we're not alone. But that doesn't mean that everything that they say to or about God is absolute doctrinal truth, right? We know, we know. I'm gonna read this, Psalms chapter 16. I'm reading from the NRSV this morning. It says, protect me. Oh God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the holy ones in the land, they are the noble in whom is all my delight. Those who choose another God multiply their sorrows. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names upon my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. I have a goodly inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night also, my heart instructs me. I keep the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad and my soul rejoices. My body also rests secure. For you do not give me up to Sheol or let your faithful one see the pit. You show me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. In your right hand are pleasures forevermore. 
Amen. Fullness of joy in his presence. Let that be our prayer this morning.
We're doing a new song this morning. You probably know it, maybe. If you don't, just listen, read. I search the world, but it couldn't fill me. Man's empty praise and treasures and faith. Never enough. And you came along and put me back together. And every desire is now satisfied here in your love. This heart is really easy. Oh, there's nothing. Better than you, there's nothing better than you, Lord. There's nothing, nothing is better than you. Amen. I'm not afraid to show you. still call me friends Woo! the God of the mountain is the God of the valley we go there's not a place your mercy and grace won't find me again oh there's nothing Better than you, there's nothing better than you, Lord, there's nothing, nothing is better than you. Sing that again. Oh, there's nothing better than you, there's nothing better than you, Lord, there's nothing. Nothing is better than you. You turn mourning to dancing. You give beauty for ashes. You turn shame into glory. You're the only Give beauty for ashes. You turn shame into glory. You're the only one who can. You turn graves into gardens. You turn bones into armies. You turn seas into highways. You're the
there's nothing, nothing is better than you. Sing this out. Oh, there's nothing better than you. There's nothing better than you, Lord. There's good workout. It also occurred to me while we were singing this, you turn graves into gardens, that a lot of churches have graveyards on their property. That's a normal thing. And back in the day, you'd have a graveyard on your church. And we have a garden on our church that's so beautiful. We are the church that has a garden because it's representative. He turns graves into gardens. He brings life from death. Amen. All right, let's worship him some more.
seated. And I was fired up with that song, Graves Into Gardens. I've loved that song. I think that song came out right before COVID, and so that was one of those that was really well-timed because <laughs> during a season of all things uh, dark and depressing, that song gave me life. Um, I was so grateful for it, and so I can't sing it sitting still. Sometimes I think it's a good thing that I'm... Uh, it, you know, in the front, and I'm completely oblivious as to whether or not I'm the only one moving around like a crazy person. And then that way, I just don't have to worry about it. Um, but then that, you know, it's a it's a tension. <laughs> but I just wonder: Are you filled with the joy of the Lord this morning? I'm. I really do genuinely want to know. And if you're not, don't feel obligated to say you are, but are you filled with the joy that only comes from the Lord, that if you walked in this place with nothing or no one else, would you have joy in your soul? If yes, say amen. Amen. And if not, if the answer is yes, thanks be to God, because sometimes I'm like, I don't know what to feel joyful about. (laughs) That's just the honest truth sometimes. Not all the time, not most of the time, but definitely some of the time. And if you feel this morning like, no, I don't have that joy within me, then my prayer is that you would, we say this language all the time, open up your heart. And I'm afraid that we say it so much that it's just that cliche uh, phrase that you hear the pastor say a lot, but I genuinely mean, would you come before the Lord this morning, fully transparent and open before God, and would you pray that he would fill your heart and your soul with a joy that only comes from him? Spoiler alert, that's what the sermon, that's where the sermon is going this morning. I'm giving you a head start. You get a head start. Would you begin praying now that the Lord would open up your heart, that you would receive a joy that is only from him, can only be sustained by him, can only be found in him. You have to come open though. You have to come with with reckless abandon. You have to be willing to let the Lord meet you and fill you in the way that he chooses to do so. You can come before him closed-hearted and he will not force himself upon you. But I just wonder, I, I just wish, and maybe this is true, I don't know, but I genuinely wish, it's my prayer, that everyone in this place would be so filled with the joy of the Lord that you could not stand still if you had to. That's my prayer. And it doesn't mean you have to move and that if you don't, that there's something wrong with you or that you must not have the joy. But it's my prayer that we would be so overwhelmed and so filled with the goodness and joy of God that we couldn't help it, but we, we have to move and we have to respond. That is my prayer. That we would be open, that we would be filled with his love and his joy and that we would respond. 
So this morning, I invite you to come before God together with your faith community, with your church family, your brothers and sisters in Christ. Would you come before God open and honest and allow him to fill you with his good love and joy? Let's pray. God, I know that I've consumed a lot of coffee this morning, but I am convinced that my inability to stand still is because of you. And because of the joy, the the joy that you've given me that I really truly can't explain. And God, I just wanna say that I'm grateful because we deal with, with hard things in life. We, we face difficult days and situations and sometimes unexpected challenges and trials come out of left field. And, and God, I share that, that is, that's been the case at, at some times this week for myself. And, and I know that those difficult moments have, have, have sought to rob me of my joy. And they've sought to, to cause me to question whether or not I can actually still carry joy and, and grief in the same, at the same time. But God, I thank you that you have filled me with your joy, that you have met me where I am. And it's only because of you. It's not because of outside circumstances. It's not because of any particular person. It's only because of you that I can stand here and and feel a little bit over the top and a little bit crazy that I just wanna say, Jesus, I love you. And I thank you for giving me your joy. God, I thank you that we can come together and stand here today and praise the God who takes dead, dry bones and brings them back to life. God, only you can do that. There is no other source who can take a valley of dead, dry bones and bring them back to life. And God, some of us here today are the dead, dry bones. And God, we are asking you to bring us back to life. God, if we're feeling the images of a grave or a garden, God, I pray that that rather than feeling like dead, dry bones that, that are found in graveyards, God, I pray that we would identify more with a garden, that we would feel the new life that is taking place in our midst, in our own hearts, in the hearts and lives of those around us, because only you can bring about new life. I love the, the truth that we are able to find in songs at times, that you make beautiful things out of dust. You take ashes and you can create something beautiful. You can bring life. God, there is so much rich Uh, truth in those words and those phrases. God, may it be true for us. May we feel that in the depths of our soul. God, I want to give space and a moment where those who are here, who are desperate to be filled with your joy, God, I want to give them a moment to come before you in their hearts and that they would honestly bring that before you. 
And I don't want my voice to influence what your spirit, what you are saying to them. And so God, come speak to our hearts, to our dry bones. Come, Holy Spirit. Come make us new. Do a new thing in our hearts. God, would you do a new thing in our midst? God, we stand or we sit before you today. And may our prayer be, here am I. Here I am, God. I come before you open, honest, no expectations, but I come expectantly, God, waiting for you to do a new thing. Here I am. God, I feel the, the heavy reality of the, the fact that there is nothing I can say. There is no sermon I could craft or preach that can invoke joy in our hearts. You truly are the only one who can do it. And God, I pray that you would. God, I pray that you would come. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would come and continue to come. Lord Jesus, as we open up your word, would you help us to see you? And would you help us to approach your word with an imagination, with an openness, with a willingness to receive you as we read about you in this word today? Lord Jesus, would you give us a new glimpse of yourself? Would you help us to see something new in you that we haven't noticed before and may it spark something within us? That's the only reason I think that, that this is the word for today is because you seek to spark a new joy within our hearts. God, I pray that you would. I pray that we would remain open, Holy Spirit. Would you come, do that new thing. And we pray all of this in the name of the only one who can, in the name of God the Father, in the name of Christ the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit, God's people prayed and all God's people said, Amen and amen. Amen. Well, we've had a lot of new things, uh, or not new things, but a lot of 
extra special moments in the service these past few weeks, and today is going to be another one of those moments. Um, today, and here's the, the bittersweet thing is summertime is busy, and people are traveling, people are gone, kids go to different homes, and so not every all the kids that we're going to recognize are here today, uh, and we had a very limited amount of time to work with, but today is a special day in which we're going to recognize those kids and teens who are promoting from one grade or class to another um, because school begins this week for so many of our kids and it's just mind-blowing uh, and some are ready and some are not there's all kinds of new challenges and emotions that come within the new school year and so what I hope this opportunity is is not just an opportunity to like do the cheesy promotional Sunday bit that we just check a box but I tried to approach this very intentionally and, and in a way that would help our kids to know that they are seen and loved loved by their church family. Amen. And so I just want to bring them before you this morning and share a little bit about kind of the transition for some of them as they promote to one class or another. So let's start with the youngest and we're going to start with Rebecca Fuller this morning. Rebecca, come up here and join me. So Rebecca is, tell us what grade you're going into. Can you tell us? Kindergarten. Yes, that's right. Kindergarten. You're going into kindergarten. All right. And so Rebecca is promoting out of our preschool class and going into, uh, technically, she's been uh, attending Kid City because this little girl is so smart. She is so bright. She is so uh, open and, and, and perceptive to the truths of God. And so she's been hanging with the big kids off and on for a while now. But Rebecca is... We're going to come this way. I, I just get told what to do and I do it. So we're going to come this way. Um, anyway, so Rebecca's going into kindergarten. So Rebecca, I just have this little uh, little something from me to you. Um, this is a devotional that Mr. Stu uh, got for our family. And we found it to be very helpful and really interesting for our kids. And so I wanted you to have one too. And so I want you to take this and I want you to know that you are loved by our church family. And we're so excited for you to start kindergarten and we're praying that it's a really great year, okay? All right, can you show Rebecca some love? All right, she's thoroughly freaked out. <laughs> okay, I guess next let's go with uh, Jonah and Bella and Emma. If you guys will come up here. Jonah, Bella, and Emma. So Jonah, Bella, and Emma are still going to be uh, in Kid City on Sunday mornings, but... Jonah, Bella, and Emma, just come line up right here in the center, or they'll tell you to move, so we got to follow instructions. Uh, Jonah and Bella and Emma are going into the preteen class this fall. So next month, they will start a special preteen class to kind of transition uh, from the Kid City time to youth group time, which we still have a few years, right, Don? So we're going to not rush it, but we're so excited that they're going to be moving into the preteen class on Sunday nights, and so we have these for you guys. So these books are, we have notebooks and then regular like devotional books, but I found these. And these books are called Little Prayers for Ordinary Days. 
I'm sharing this with everyone just in case you know someone who might benefit from these books. And they're just simple prayers that you can pray every day. These prayers are written in language for kids. And um, I think it does a really good job of explaining the, the simple yet complicated emotions that you have. And so these are just little prayers that you can offer to God each day whenever you need it. And I thought it would be really special. So there's just a little something for you guys. We are so excited that you're moving up into the preteen class, and we're just so, we just love you guys so much and want you to know that, okay? So can we show these three some love? All right. Okay, and then that just leaves those who are the big jump, promoting out of Kid City, like they don't go downstairs to children's church anymore. They hang in here with us every single week. And no one is more excited about that than my own daughter. She's loving it because she doesn't hear me talk enough. And she's like, mom, I just, I just want to hear you talk all the time. And I'm so excited that I get to hear you all the time. She's so thrilled. Anyway, so, so I'm going to ask Nora to come. She's kind of representing her age group because so many of them are gone today. I know. I'm going to hear about that later. Uh, so <laughs> Nora, this is for you. Come in the middle. All right, this is for you. So imagine today that we have Saren Quinn. You may know Saren Quinn. Sophie Jansen would be here. And then Tony's boys, Kobe and Caden. So all of those guys are promoting out of Kid City and out of the preteen group. And they are officially entering into the junior high, seventh through 12th grade group. And we just say, wow, what? <laughs> um, and so I have here for all the junior hires, um, this is somebody who I, I know this author and she's fabulous and she co-authored this with, with a guy by the name of Mark. I'm not even gonna try to pronounce his last name, but it's 99 Thoughts for Junior Hires, Biblical Truths in Bite-Sized Pieces. Um, also really good, honest, vulnerable stuff in there. And so Tony, I'm gonna let you take yours home to your boys and we've got Sophie and Sarens here. And so Nora, as you are presenting or representing rather your whole group, we wanna say we love you and and let's show her some love. Let's show them some love. All right. Um, this was a little spur of the moment thing that I just felt uh, prompted to do. Um, I'm going to place up here several envelopes. These are envelopes of all of our, our kids and teens, not just those who are promoting, but those who come regularly on Sundays. These are their names. And as those kids enter into a new school year this week, some are homeschooled, but many of them go to school, go to public schools. Um, I just wonder if you would be willing at the end of the service to just come and pick an envelope and be willing to pray for that child or that teen throughout the year. Um, just prayerfully consider that. I'm gonna lay them up here and I would just love it if, if I could know that our kids and our teens are, are surrounded in prayer by their church family who knows them by name and who lifts up their name to the Lord and who loves them. And so um, before our kids dismiss, I just wanna say a quick prayer for them. Would you join me, church? God, we just pray for these precious kids and teens that you have entrusted into our care. And God, I pray this morning that as they prepare to enter into a new school year, God, I pray that you would go before them and that you would walk with them, God. God, I pray for those um, who are 
entering into a new year that, that feels a little bit scary and challenging because everything's going to be new and different, those who are, who are going to new schools. Um, God, I pray that you would calm those fears and those nerves, and I pray that they would know that you are with them, that you love them, and that you walk beside them. And God, we pray that they would be a shining light to their peers, to their teachers, and we pray, God, um, that you would do great things in our young kids, in our teens. God, we know that you are working in their lives. I pray that we would learn from them and all that, that you are using them to teach us, God. And we pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right, kiddos, you are dismissed. Any kids that would like to go with Dawn to uh, Kids City, you guys can go now. And we love our kids. Amen? All right. Well, uh, last week we looked at the story of the feeding of the 5,000 in Matthew's gospel. Um, we we kind of paralleled that story with the story of the Exodus, the story of the Israelites being brought out of Egypt and into the wilderness. And we talked about how God is always faithful to provide, that God was faithful to provide for the Israelites in the wilderness, even when they questioned it and wondered when the next meal was coming, where it was coming from. God was faithful. And then Jesus revealed his divine nature as he fed a group of over 5,000 people miraculously. We talked about how God provides in ways that we don't always expect or understand. And some of us are clinging to that, amen? Where we're clinging, and, and I've, I've talked with some of you who are in the, I just wanna acknowledge those that are in the tension of that waiting. Like some of us can say, yes, he's faithful to provide. He has provided for me, and I can think of all the times. And then there's some of you who are like, I'm still waiting, <laughs> And I'm trusting, but I'm in that tension of waiting and trusting, and so we acknowledge that. But we talked about how there is this difference. What really stood out to me, for, for whatever it's worth, it, it didn't, I didn't know what it would amount to, but what stood out to me from that is that there's this difference between coming before God with expectations, like demands, right, and coming before God expectantly, just trusting and knowing that you serve a God who provides in so many beautiful and amazing ways and he will continue to do so. And he often goes above and beyond what we actually need. And, and I say all that, not necessarily because today's uh, message follows that in any particular way, but I do say that because in today's passage, we're gonna note one of the maybe more interesting ways that Jesus abundantly provides for a people who are in need. Um, and so I'm going to invite you to stand this morning. We're going to be reading from John's Gospel, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Here's the word of the Lord. It says, On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. 
Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Friends, this is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God, you may be seated. I'm just gonna tell you that as far as I can tell, like I'm, as far as my, my memory will go, I am confident and, and almost absolutely positive that I have never heard a sermon preached on this passage. Like that occurred to me this week. And I don't know if it's because I grew up in the Nazarene church. And so this is one of those that we just maybe don't touch. I don't know. I'm not pointing fingers and, and assuming. I just don't know. I just know. And, I, and there's always the chance that I'm wrong. And maybe I did and I just have no memory of it. Maybe I was a teenager and it just didn't stick or something. But to my knowledge, I've never heard a sermon preached on this passage. And really, as I thought more about it, I was like, I haven't even heard a lot of dialogue around this passage. We kind of point to it at times and it comes up at times, but I've never even heard a really significant conversation regarding this passage. And I say that to say that as I approach this passage this week, as I was preparing to preach on it today, um, and by the way, how did I get here? I don't know. I just started in John's gospel and it stood out to me. And, and for whatever reason, it drew me in. And I was like, I wanna know more about what's going on here. And so I'm kind of doing that with you guys. I hope that's okay. But as I was studying and, and thinking about this passage, it was a, I was a blank slate. I was like, Lord, whatever it is that you wanna show me or teach me about this passage, I'm a blank slate. I've heard nothing almost. And so whatever it is, I'm, I'm ready to receive it. And I'll tell you, as I read through the passage multiple times in a few different translations, I had a lot of questions. In fact, I had way more questions than answers, right? I had a lot of things that I wanted to know about. It's good practice, by the way, just a little side note. Write down your questions. Read through the passage enough times that it makes you question what's going on. That is good. And a lot of times that's how we receive insight from God's word because we have a lot of questions and sometimes those questions are holy and spirit-led and important because it's gonna help us uh, receive a truth about God. And so I had a lot of questions. Some of my bigger lingering questions, I had a lot, but these are just a few. Some of those bigger questions that lingered for a while is, what happens between verses four and six, right? Like you can pull it back up if you want to, but you don't have to. If you look at your Bibles between verse four and six, like we go from Jesus saying to Mary, his mother, and he's not being rude or crass to her, right? He's just like, why are, this is not our concern. Like, I don't know what to tell you about it. This, this doesn't involve us. We're just here at a wedding, right? We're just here. We're, we're guests at this wedding. I'm not gonna get into that right now. That's what I hear from Jesus. And then I just wanna know what happens in between verse four when he says that and then verse six when he's like, all right, go get those water jars and fill them up. Like, no, I have so many questions. What happens? 
what takes place that Jesus went from one hard stance that's like, what, that doesn't involve us, to, all right, go get the water jars. Like, clearly, he has a very specific plan, and there's a lot involved in this plan. This is not some simple test. Did you catch how big these water jars are? They're massive. And I just wonder what happened. And so, again, another good practice as you're reading through Scripture, there were so many moments where I just sat and imagined Like, I just let it play out in my imagination. Like, what happens? Like, when does Jesus go from a little bit maybe annoyed with his mom? Because I think Jesus, again, fully human. He took it on. Surely he had feelings of like, mom, it's not time yet. Come on, you know, like, stop rushing me. Stop momming me. And then you've got Mary, the mother of Jesus, who never stops momming Jesus because she's his mother. She gave birth to him. It's her job to to preoccupy herself with Jesus and all that he can and and won't or will do, right? And so what happens? I I don't, spoiler alert, I don't have the answers. There's not like any hidden text for pastors or preachers. We get what you get. And so I just have, I'm left to just kind of wonder and imagine, and I think that's okay. But I also wonder, another question I had is, does Mary have some special or significant insight here that no one else has? And quickly I decided, yes, I think she does. We see this as Mary is told about her conception and as as Mary gives birth to Jesus. And in those moments after giving birth to Jesus, Scripture clearly tells us that Mary ponders things in her heart and she's thinking about all of these things that have happened. She's thinking about the fact that God chose her. Nobody, a nobody who was from a nowhere place, a place that was no nothing of importance to anyone. She was a nobody. And God chose her to carry the son of God and bring him into the world. He chose this meek young woman to carry the light of the world into the world. And so, yes, I absolutely believe that Mary held and continued to hold significant special insight about Jesus that no one else had. And I was talking about this with Bo, and I really love how, because a lot of times, here's the reality, I think men and women pull different things from Scripture, right? Obviously, I think we read it differently. Some things might stand out to men more than women and vice versa. And so I really appreciated that Bo's, like, like unfiltered perspective was, oh, yeah, Mary was like, come on, Jesus, I know you're going to do this, and I'm just going to go ahead and act and assume as you will, because I know you will. And I just love how even Bo read the passage and understood the same thing. Like, yeah, totally, Mary knew what Jesus could do, and she was already there. Like, she knew that he would do it, and she was so confident that she's just like, all right, just get ready to do what he's going to tell you to do, because he's going to do something. I just think that's amazing. And then another question I had was, what's the deal with the purification jars? Like, why those jars? Why are we given that detail? Why doesn't John just say jars? But he he specifically mentions the purification jars. And friends, I don't spend a lot of time talking about that, but that's like a whole other rabbit hole that you could go down, looking at the, the significance of purification jars and what that meant for Jews. And so why was that detail mentioned? It seems significant, right? So hold on to that. And then finally, forgive me, but I just wondered, why so much wine? Like, that's a lot of wine, okay? And 
I just wonder, like, I understand here. I, I understand that weddings, we're used to weddings that last like an evening, an afternoon, maybe six hours or so. And I understand that during this time, weddings were different. They lasted, the celebration went on for days. And so I understand that the wine is being consumed over days, not necessarily hours, but still, that's a lot of wine. Like, I was really fixated on the quantity. I don't think that's necessarily super important, but I was just like, that is so much wine. And, and I was thinking about all together, that's somewhere between, I think, like, I read 120 to 180 gallons, and, and, and I was thinking about things that are that big, and I was Googling. I was really invested in this part of the story. I don't know why. I think it'll come back later, but, but that's like, picture a hot tub, like a hot tub full of, of wine. That's how much wine this is. I just wanted to know, like I needed a vision. I don't know how big these purification jars are. And so I'm like, just how much is this? This seems excessive. And here's, here's something that I think is important for us to keep in mind. Because again, I'm just going to go ahead and say it. Nazarenes don't talk about this very much because as people who belong to a denomination who simply asks us to refrain and to abstain from alcohol consumption, we probably don't think about these things that much. And so I think it's helpful for us to understand that wine was commonplace for Jews at mealtimes, right? Like that was not anything like, ooh, or wow, this seems dangerous. This doesn't seem like this was normal, commonplace. This was a normal thing for Jews during this time, for people during this time, right? And so a lot of, a lot of the reason for that is because wine was healthier than most water. It was safer to consume than a lot of their water. Another reason could be that because they're in a Palestinian environment, there is just an excess production of things like plums and olives and dates and grapes. And so therefore you have an excess of olive oil. We read a lot about olive oil in scripture. It's not just the wine, okay? But that's gonna lead to an excess. This was easily accessible. It was overall safe and good for them. And this is something that was normal for them to have wine at their meals. And I think, you know, it's helpful for us to understand that in this context, I read that it's more diluted than ours today. So the alcohol level's significantly lower from what I gather. And so it's not like this was just some, you know, Christ-endorsed drunken event that Jesus is like, give them more wine. They need more wine, <laughs> right? I don't think that's what's happening here. Uh, but as the passage suggests, it's still possible that, that drunkenness can happen. And so considering all of this, I know my notes were a little crazy this week and I thought I could be judged. I could be judged by these notes this week, but I was still fascinated. Here's ultimately why I was fascinated with the wine component, okay? Because I am thinking about this in the context of, John says this is the first of many signs that point to Jesus. So track with me here. And one of those signs later would be the passage that we looked at last week, the feeding of the 5,000. And so I'm thinking about these two things together 
Maybe helpful, maybe not, I don't know. But I'm like, feeding the 5,000, that seems very necessary. All these people are here, Jesus is touching them, healing them, ministering to them, and and it's just in his nature to say, let's throw a banquet and and have a meal together. All 10,000 of us, what do you say? And the disciples are like, that sounds a little impossible. And Jesus miraculously provides. Like, I understand that miracle. That makes sense to me. We see all these miracles and signs throughout not just John's gospel, but all the gospels where Jesus does things like raises people from the dead, brings people back to life. He has divine insights when he's looking into their lives. He provides food for the hungry. He miraculously heals the lame, the deaf, the leprous, the demon possessed. And that all seems very important and necessary. But then the wine, I'm like, but what purpose does that serve? Like those seemed necessary and significant, but I'm just like, what is the purpose of this wine? What, why was this the first of many that John highlights in his gospels? What do we learn about Jesus and who he is through the multiplication of this wine? Are you with me? Do you, do you see like where I was just like, I'm, I know there's something here. What is it? What is it? What's the nugget for us? I think this is a a helpful question to wrestle with, although it got a little like weird and often left field at times. And I think that that the the reasoning is is far beyond what I can satisfy today. I think there's, this could go in a lot of different directions, but here's kind of where I landed. I was thinking about how last week I shared that that borrowed concept, if you will, of that the feeding of the 5,000 maybe wasn't about the bread and the fish, but it was about the feeding, right? That's kind of simple, and, and yeah, we get that. And so in the same way, I was thinking that maybe this isn't just about the wine. Maybe this is about something far greater than the wine itself. And if this was the first of many signs, as John says, what is this sign pointing to? What is the sign of the wine pointing to, and what does it tell us about Jesus? And so let's, let's, let's go back to the story. Uh, we already talked about Mary and how she's so sure, and then Jesus moves to do what she's insinuated that he ought to do. And so we pick up with the servants, and the servants are told by Mary, get ready and just do whatever it is he tells you to do. And so they do. They, they take the wine to the master to, to, I kind of picture him as like the host or like the, the, the chief um, like wedding planner or ceremony holder, right? He's kind of in charge of the details and stuff. And, and so they take the wine to him and we see, and I think we notice pretty quickly that there's some social redemption here, right? Because in this culture, in case you didn't already know, it was considered a little bit of a social faux pas for for a family or a host to run out of wine at a wedding celebration. That would have been, they would have been looked down upon. There would have been a lot of, can you believe they didn't have enough wine? Like, wow, really? That would have just caused some shame for this family. And so I think about the fact that here's this little moment of social recognition or redemption, if you will. Oh, what's this? You guys saved, most people save the good wine or give the good wine at the beginning, but you guys saved the best for, la- the best for last. And, and that's really notable. That's, that's worth noticing. 
And I think, okay, that's great. I think Jesus is all for socially redeeming people, but that doesn't point the master to Jesus, right? Stay with me. In verse nine, we see he did not realize where it had come from. The master of the banquet, the family, the bridegroom, that doesn't point any of them to Jesus because none of them knew. They just assumed these people planned really well, they, they eyeballed, they kind of made a guesstimate, and they, it turns out they did a great job, and they saved the best for last. That's really impressive, and we're going to note that. But that doesn't point them to Jesus, right? And it's at this point that the second part of verse 9 really stood out to me. Or the first part, he did not realize where it had come from. He, the, the master of the banquet, The second part says, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The servants who had drawn the water knew. Have you ever imagined what it must be like to experience a wedding banquet or a wedding celebration from a servant's perspective? Like the servant, from, from how I can imagine it, the servant is, is just kind of standing on the sidelines, right? Like they're just waiting to serve. That's what their job is. They're waiting to clean up a mess. They're waiting to bring something to someone. They're waiting to serve. They're waiting to wait on someone, right? They're just standing on the outside, and they're looking in, and maybe they're watching all of this celebrating, and clearly a good time was had by all, right? Especially now, it's, it's on, like they're having a great time. And the servants, you can laugh, it's funny, it's okay, you can laugh. They're having a great time, they have all this wine, and everybody's feeling really good. And the servants are on the outside, and they're just watching. They're watching the celebrating. They're watching the joy, and I can't help but wonder if, if some of them may kind of feel like, well, we're here, but we're not really a part. Like we're here, but we're not really participating in on the fun. And man, that looks like fun. I mean, have you guys been to a wedding? Have you been to a fun wedding? <laughs> there, and I don't, I'm not talking about like with alcohol or anything. I'm just in general, like weddings are fun. I've been to some fun weddings where it's just, there's so much joy. It's contagious, right? Like everyone's celebrating, everyone's happy. Two people are, are oh, madly in love with each other and everyone's just like, oh, that's so cute. And it's just, everyone's having a great time. Weddings are a joyous occasion. So imagine then sitting on the outside looking in and thinking, man, that looks really fun. I'm, it looks like everyone's having a great time. Here I am just kind of waiting to clean up their mess. Like all these people are going to go home. They're going to have some good stories. And the servants are going to be there cleaning up after their mess, thinking about all the fun that was had, even though they didn't maybe participate. And I can't help but notice that Jesus does what he always does. Have you caught it? The servants who had drawn the water knew. Isn't it a little bit interesting, maybe even ironic, that the servants who, this is the thing I'm not clear of, like maybe they partook in the drinking of wine or maybe they didn't. I don't know. I'm, maybe they did. 
But isn't it interesting that even those who didn't participate and maybe if they're worried about running out, I could see where the servants don't drink it because that's only going to make everyone, that's going to make the guests do without and that was a shameful thing. So isn't it interesting that the ones who perhaps didn't partake or didn't even drink any of this wine, they knew the story of where it came from? Like, isn't it interesting that on this night, everyone goes home and even the servants are left with a really amazing story. Like they went home with the story that night, right? Like they saw what Jesus did and no one else knew, but they knew. And I love this so much because in a way, it's like Jesus is including them in on the party. Jesus is extending the invitation to them, the the least of these in this social setting. Jesus is inviting them to participate, and, and can we just say, in a really incredible way. Jesus is giving them insight that no one else except for, for his mother and the disciples have. No one else sees what Jesus does, but the servants are included. seems to be that, that the least significant, at least in this context, are the ones who, who go home with the story. In this moment, the servants are among the first to see the kingdom of God, which is at hand. Because in John's gospel, this is the first thing that happens. This is the first thing, the first of many signs that point to Jesus as the son of God, the one who is bringing about the kingdom of God. And the servants, the servants are among the first to see the kingdom of God that is coming and that is here and now. The servants are among the first to taste and see, even if they didn't taste any wine, and to witness and experience the coming of the kingdom of God. And we've often noted in the gospels that Jesus brings about the kingdom of God in ways that tend to elevate the least of these who are usually the least significant in the story or so it might seem to us because that's who Jesus is. No one is excluded. The ones who are usually on the bottom are invited in first. And friends, there's so many details we're not given in this story, but I love imagining these servants who maybe didn't feel as significant at the beginning. I love the smile that must have been put on their face as they are like, whoa, something good is happening. Like, whoa, this is, this is earth shattering. This is life changing. Like, who is this? And I want that. <laughs> I want more of, of whatever it is that he's giving. And I think what I love as much as the servants being among the first to experience the coming of the kingdom of God in John's gospel, I love that Jesus does something so profound and miraculous at a wedding banquet. Because all throughout scripture and even Jesus himself in the gospels many times compares the kingdom of God to a great wedding banquet celebration. Right? Like the kingdom of God is like the master who was preparing a wedding banquet. And so not only is Jesus kind of flipping things upside down like he often does, not only is Jesus including the least of these as he always does, but Jesus is proclaiming the coming of the kingdom of God in very subtle ways. We'll give it that. But he's doing that at a wedding banquet, which is what the kingdom of God is, is compared to in our finite minds. There's an abundance of joy 
There is celebration. There's love. There's community. It's a big party. You better believe, I, I truly do believe that the kingdom of God is going to be more, than, more celebrating and joy than we are ready for, especially some of us. Let's just be honest. Like, we're not ready for that. We are not even going to be ready for how much joy and celebrating. And we have to know that because that's what Jesus compares it to. It's compared to a wedding banquet, And wedding banquets, whether you've experienced a fun wedding or not, were a joyous, celebratory occasion. And you know, something that stood out to me too, the purification jars kind of coming back into the picture, I think those purification jars represent the religious leaders and how Maybe they had their eyes on the coming of the kingdom of God, but we also know they missed it in a lot of ways, right? And I think a lot of times they missed it because they believed within the depths of their heart. We don't shame them. We we just recognize they believed within the depths of their heart that they were going to experience the wedding banquet, the feast, but it was only because of the rules, the rituals, and the piety, which is what those purification jars represented. And I don't think Jesus is doing away with those, okay? I don't think Jesus is is throwing those out and saying, these don't matter anymore, they're not important. But I think it's very significant that he puts the new wine, if you will. He does a new thing in and through these purification jars, which are significant. And that alerts us listeners, that alerts us readers, that alerts the original audience, John's audience. He is saying the kingdom of God is coming and those who experience it are not going to do so because they followed all the rules perfectly, because they did all the ritual things perfectly, because they had the most personal piety. But the kingdom of God is coming for all who are open, for all who are willing to receive Christ as king of their lives. And the kingdom of God is for everyone. It's a great banquet that all are invited to, and you don't get there because of your works or what you do or don't do. You get there because God is good, and God is inviting all to experience the goodness and fullness of God that will be experienced in his kingdom. In other words, Craig Blong, scholar Craig Blomberg puts it uh, in a lot better words. <laughs> he says, Jesus is bringing the wine of the new age. So keep in mind, this is about so much more than wine, right? This is about so much more than wine. Jesus is bringing the wine of the new age. It represents a joy, that transcends and replaces the water of the Jewish ritual. So with Jesus doing this miracle or this sign, John would call it a sign, in Jesus doing this as the first of many signs, he's pointing to the joy that can only be found in him. It's a joy that's extended to all. All are invited and welcome to receive, but it can only be found in him. 
And I can't help but wonder if the servants who saw these jars saw them for what they were and they noted that night that Jesus is certainly doing a new thing in their midst and they went home, I'm convinced, they went home with so much joy, wine or no wine, so much joy given as they see a glimpse of Jesus and a glimpse of the coming of the kingdom of God. And you know what I think that means for us today? I think it means that there ought to be an abundance of joy experienced in Christ by us, his church. And I think too often, too often I think the world looks at us as a whole, the church, unfortunately, they, you know, see us through certain individuals and they kind of hold us all to that. And that's unfortunate. But too often, I think there's still something to be said that the world looks at us and they don't see anything different from what they have. They look at us and I think so often they're like, you have the joy of the Lord? Does your face know? <laughs> Does your face know that you have the joy of the Lord in your heart? I think that too often the world, they, they see Christians, and that doesn't mean we can't have a bad day. Friends, I give you grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. Give it to me in return, because I know I am the face sometimes that, that is the opposite of joy. I understand we have bad days, we have bad moods, and we can't be perfect and, and on all the time. But in general, I think that when the world looks at us, if the world is watching you and looking at you and noting, well, they call themselves a Christian, a follower of Jesus, but really their life doesn't look any different from mine. I don't know what they have, but I don't really want it because it doesn't look appealing and it doesn't look like it's gonna help me in any way. And friends, I just want to invite us, that this story invites us to join in on the joyous celebration that is the coming of the kingdom of God. And I think so many of us are sitting on the sidelines watching. And maybe it's because we haven't felt included. Maybe for some it's legitimate. I'm sitting on the sidelines because I don't feel included. I don't feel embraced. I don't feel welcome. And if that's the case, I want to say you are welcome. We receive you, we embrace you, we love you, we need you, we want you to come and experience. But maybe some are sitting on the sidelines like, I'm still skeptical that these people actually believe what they say they believe. Because they're pretty ornery, they're pretty negative, they're pretty stubborn, they're pretty hateful. They're, they are sometimes not very pleasant to talk to. I'm not convinced that, that I want what they have. But maybe there are some, and I think this might be a lot of us, looking at myself too, that we're sitting on the sidelines even after we've been invited by Christ to join in and participate in the joyous celebration that is the coming of the kingdom of God, which is now. It's coming and it's here. And friends, the love and joy and grace of Jesus is like the wine of this banquet. It's the finest there is. It's the best that was saved for last. 
One of my favorite verses, and I'll end with this, is Psalm 34, 8. It's an invitational verse. I read it like an invitation. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And I, I love that word taste is, is another word that, that would communicate to, to experience and take notice, rather. Take notice that the Lord is good. Taste and see for yourself that the Lord is good and offers us joy and abundance, life to the full. Taste and see for yourselves that the Lord is good and in him is life and this life is the light of all mankind. Taste and see that the Lord is good and in him you will experience something far greater than you could ever experience apart from him. That would have been a great place for an amen. (laughs) Taste and see that the Lord is good and that Jesus came and he lived and he laid down his life so that we might find a full, abundant, and joyous life and love in him. And I don't say that because I need your amens, but I want to know that you believe this. I want to know that you believe that you are invited to participate and it's not your your deeds or your actions or your checking off boxes, the things you do or don't do that's going to get you in to celebrate the kingdom of God. And it's a beautiful word for us that because of the goodness and abundance of God, we don't have to sit on the outside We don't have to sit on the sidelines looking in, wishing that we got to be a part of the joyous celebration. Friends, we should be at the very center of the dance floor. I'm going to invite the praise team to come. And uh, we're going to end with um, Graves into Gardens. We're going to sing this song again. And as we sing through the song again, now that you maybe are a little more familiar with it, as we sing this song, it, it does in a, in, in a way serve as an invitation for you. For, for you this morning to taste and see that the goodness and the abundance of God is here and now. And it's better than the finest wine that was miraculously provided at this joyous wedding banquet. And all are invited, Paul would say compelled, to participate in the celebration of the love of Christ. And as we sing this song, it's an invitation for us to celebrate the goodness of God. I have to say this one more thing because I'm afraid if I don't, you're gonna feel shame. This song or or this message rather, this message doesn't mean that you don't go through the valleys. This message does not mean that you don't go through seasons of wilderness where all you feel is grief and pain and loss and heartache and devastation and all you wanna do is lament. Friends, lament is holy and it's good and it's in God's word a lot. But this is an invitation to even when you're going through the valley, when you're in the wilderness, to hold both things together, to be open to the joy that can be experienced even alongside the grief. Because as this song says, it's the God of the mountain is the God of the valley and there's not a place your mercy and grace won't find me again. And so we can proclaim all of these things boldly together. Amen, amen. 
Amen. You can stand if you're able. We're going to sing this again. I kind of tricked you guys a little bit. Because now you have no reason not to dance when the guitars are going. You have no excuse. This is having issues here. But I want to encourage you. You don't have to dance if you don't want to. But find a way to express your joy. And I do love to think about that and remember when we're singing about joy that our joy is not based on our circumstances. If it was, then we could feel really bad about not being happy all the time. But our joy is deeper than, it's not the same as feeling happy. Joy is, is deeper and it's based on the goodness of God, not just his faithfulness in the past that we know practical ways that he's been good to us, that's one thing, but the fact that he did the ultimate thing, and that's what we're singing about. Why we can say there's nothing better than you. Why we, because we can say that he's seen all of our failures and flaws and still calls us a friend. So even in your worst moment, you can have joy because you have a friend. And he's not just any friend, but the best friend. The most powerful, amazing God who is love, who created the universe who's all-powerful and all-knowing, is your friend. Like, that's amazing. And what I love about this that we can think about as we're singing this is that the purification jars represent what we do. When we go to clean ourselves up, to purify, the purification jars was a ritual, which is good. Rituals are good. We can be faithful to that. But Jesus replaces that with what he does. This is a story of his hospitality to them and to us, that it's, it's no longer about what you do, but it's a gift, a free gift, that you aren't earning it, you didn't do anything, you didn't wash up, he just gave you this gift of joy. And we can celebrate this morning because it's a gift, because it's from him, and it's based on the fact that this life is not all that there is. This body is not the end of all things for me. Because if it was, that would be really depressing. But it's not. And we can celebrate and know that God has given us the gift of eternal life, the gift of salvation, forgiven all of our debts. So we're now free. Amen? Okay. Let's sing this together. about these words, and I encourage you to sing because we learned it earlier. I searched the world, but it couldn't fill me. Man's empty praise and treasures of faith are never enough. And you came along and put me back together and every desire is now satisfied here in your love there's nothing better than you there's nothing better than you lord there's
But you've seen them all And you still call me friends Cause the God of the mountain Is the God of the valley And there's not a place Your mercy and grace Won't find me
Well, friends, I uh, hope that you have opened yourselves up to taste and see and experience the goodness and the abundance of God. So as you prepare to leave this morning, I pray that you would go in the name and in the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that you would remain open Remain open to the ways that he wants you to experience his abundant joy, regardless of what's going on in your life. Friends, I invite you to be intentional today and this week to taste and see the goodness of God that is here and now. You are loved. Have a great day. You are dismissed.